It's Friday, and today that means live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Friday, January 14, 2022. And today, as we do every Friday, we do live Q&A. Friday podcast, whenever I can arrange an appropriate internet signal and all the technology and have a microphone hooked up, etc. Friday podcasts are always Q&A shows. They are live, open line Fridays. So you can call in, talk about anything that you want, ask me any questions that you want. can be related to something that's in your personal life. You could talk about a question that you have, a particular point of financial planning or life planning that you'd like to talk about. You can also discuss anything related to the show, questions, comments you have, feedbacks, things that you agreed with and you have an example of things that you disagreed with and you want to take me to task all of that is welcome here on a friday q a show to gain access to one of these friday q a shows all you need to do is join us on patreon patreon.com slash radical personal finance search for on radical personal search on patreon for radical personal finance you'll find the show there and if you sign up to support the show there on patreon then you will gain access to one of these friday q a shows and i would love to have you Today we begin with Vinny. Vinny in Brooklyn, welcome, sir. How can I serve you today? Thank you so much for taking my call. My uh, my questions regarding uh, DIY projects. Um, I'm wondering if you have an objective or uh, a formula to determine whether or not um, you should do a project yourself or whether you should pay someone to do it. Um, long story short, um, own a house. It's uh, for about two years. It's uh, it's a little bit of a fixer upper, and I live in a high cost of living area. And um, right now, there's uh, unfortunately a little bit of uh, tension with me and my wife because, um, you know, we're just trying to figure out how to get this stuff done here. And of course, um, you know, contractors come to the house, everything's very expensive. They don't necessarily do the best job. But on the other hand, I don't have time really to, to do the work. Um, you know, I, I guess it comes at the expense of relaxation. So my question to you is, um, you know, obviously, I know it's, a, it's more of a case-by-case basis question, but is there, somewhere, is there an objective formula that we can start at? Uh, whether or not to determine if we should do DIY projects ourselves. Thank you. Yeah, the objective formula from a financial perspective is going to be your personal hourly rate versus the hourly rate that you're paying for the work that you are that you're commissioning. So if your personal hourly rate is $20 per hour and the contractor is going to charge you $50 per hour, then objectively speaking, it's going to be much better for you to go ahead and do the work yourself because if you can do something close to the rate that the contractor can do it at, then you're going to be earning a higher hourly rate. On the other hand, if your personal hourly rate is $500 per hour and the contractor will work for $50 per hour, then you're far better off going ahead and hiring the contractor to get those things done. So that's the objective scenario. You want to look at the opportunity costs and ask yourself, what am I giving up in order to do this work? Now, here's where things get tricky. You have to ask yourself, uh, what am I actually giving up? So, for example, 
If you have a job where you work 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, and your personal rate is $50, and well, let's drop it down. Your personal rate is $30. Uh, no, let's do 50. Your personal rate is $50 and you're going to pay someone else $50, but, but you could otherwise do it on a Saturday morning. Then all of a sudden the financial care, the financial considerations go out the window, right? Because if you were just going to sit around and do nothing on Saturday morning, or you're going to do something productive with your Saturday morning, it doesn't matter that your personal rate is the same as the contractors. It matters what it, what is your alternative use at the time? What would you be doing otherwise? So I think here you would want to do an analysis and say, do I really enjoy the work? Is the work something that I enjoy, that I want to do? Is it something that inspires me? Or is it something that I just want to get as far away from as I possibly can? Some people come to DIY projects and they find them uh, they find them relaxing. It's something that they enjoy doing. They enjoy working with their hands. They find it relaxing. Uh, many times this includes people who are knowledge workers. I personally often get frustrated that most of my work is not tangible. And so it's nice to do a project and build a deck on your house. And all of a sudden, look, I did that. I built that. It feels good to get some of those things done. On the other hand, uh, some people find them very draining. And you know, you ask an entrepreneur who gets turned on by his business and you say, now you're going to go home and work on a bathroom. Uh, a lot of times for some people that can be very draining. And so I would analyze not only the financial ramifications, but I would analyze and say, what is the, what, how would I rank this activity? Is this something that I enjoy? Is this something that I want to do? I personally don't enjoy DIY projects. Uh, I used to want to. I did a lot of it when I was younger. I'm more capable than many people, but I don't enjoy doing it. And so I've learned that I would rather spend my time doing something that is a better fit for me and then simply pay someone to do my DIY projects for me because the time that I spend on the DIY project is quite draining for me personally. I don't find it rejuvenating. I don't find it very rewarding. Uh, I find it really frustrating a lot of times. And then that frustration kind of seeps over and it costs me my time and my mental energy in other aspects of my work. I think another lens that you would look on is a lens with regard to safety uh, and to is this actually a good idea? Is this something that I can actually do? Uh, for example, if you are someone who earns, let's say you, 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 you use your body in some, you're an athlete, right? Or you're a surgeon, something like this. It would be crazy for you to spend a lot of time doing things around equipment and, and machinery and roofs and eaves and ladders and, and, and nail guns and, and, uh, chainsaws and such, right? Because if your body is injured in some way, then that has a much higher cost for you than it does to somebody whose body is not so highly paid. And so you want to consider that uh, as well. I think finally, the big question is, what could you do with your energy and with your time? If all of the projects were done around the house and your wife weren't as upset about how long things were taking, would that give you more mental space to be more productive? Some of us have very large opportunities for productivity. Uh, we have high potential with our earnings. And if we could just put an extra 30 or 50 or 100 hours into a project, it could be an extra five, six, or seven figures to our income. And so uh, that's a big, it, it's a big cost if, if doing a DIY project to save a few pennies keeps us from that very productive side. On the other hand, some people don't have such 
financial potential. Uh, their, their, their earning ability is more modest. Uh, they don't have side work or they don't have projects that have exponential kind of financially explosive power. And for those people, I think the, the return on investment of time and money on DIY projects is a good return. But uh, the absolute financial aspect is uh, how much would you be earning with the time that you don't put into a DIY project? How much is the DIY project going to cost you? And is it a better use of your time to make money, pay taxes, deal with expenses associated with that, and then pay for it? Or is it better for you to simply do it yourself? Great. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, only, the only minor complication, which obviously, you, you know, it's not a financial question, is that the people around here, it's, you get people, you pay people to do a job and unfortunately you just really cut corners that, you know, it, it seems that people don't really want to do a good job anymore. So, um, but again, that's not a financial concern, but uh, anyway, I really, really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for, for answering that. It really helps me. Well, I think that's a, a very valid reason why you might want to spend time doing something yourself. If you get shoddy work and it's going to annoy you to have crooked tile joints and poor trim work and that's going to annoy you, then either you pony up and hire a very productive, highly qualified craftsman or you go ahead and just make it a, a side project as well. John of Pennsylvania, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Uh, good analysis for the last person. I, I fully agree on all those points. <laughs> good. Uh, one one way I've uh, become better, if it helps the other guy uh, out, uh, Vinny, uh, one way I've felt better about paying contractors in the past, or, or more recently it's come to me, is I if I hire them and they show up with, say, three or four people to do a big job, and they say it takes them, you know, three full days. I'll calculate all those out man hours up, and then I'll double it because my skill level probably isn't as good as theirs. And I'll just calculate how many weeks that would have taken me to do something, and then I see the true value in it. Um, sometimes it's hard to see it when you're just looking at a, a number on a contract. But shoddy quality is definitely uh, something that makes you uh, feel bad about paying paying contractors for sure. I think that's a good uh, point, and I think that happens to a lot of us. You look at a project and you say, you know what, this project should be simple. And all of a sudden you get into it and you need new tools, and all of a sudden the project isn't simple, and it takes you two or three times as long as it should have because of lack of experience. And so yeah. I think the key is to recognize that we should all be grateful, I think, to live in an economy that runs based upon the specialization of labor. And that's the, the underlying aspect of what makes us so wealthy in the modern world is highly specialized economies and high specialization of labor. As much as we appreciate, I think, sometimes the idea of a, of a pastoral lifestyle and we, we think about, oh, well, how wonderful it would be to have a homestead in the country. If we didn't have a specialized workforce where we all worked with each other and collaborated based upon some personal unique area of labor, we would live in absolute poverty. Uh, the, the poorest places in the world and the poorest lifestyles are always the people who try to do it all themselves, right? You go out in the country, go up to Alaska and find a homesteader who's really committed to doing all his work himself. The guy lives like a, like a pauper, right? It's just not a, it's not a wealthy lifestyle. And so I, so if we reject that, and we say, I'm going to do it all myself, there's a good chance we're going to wind up poorer. 
Uh, and so I don't think that most of us, when we look at a DIY project, really want to go and say, I'm going to be a, an off-the-grid homesteader doing everything myself. We just say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and redo my bathroom. And that's where I say there are elements of enjoyment and, and uh, satisfaction, making yourself into a person of diverse skill sets, uh, building up your, uh, trying different things in the comfort of your own home where there's not a lot of pressure to see, hey, do I like this? Maybe I enjoy this. Uh, maybe this is a, an expression of my artistry and it brings me satisfaction to make my, my personal abode something that reflects my individual taste. Those are all good, valid reasons, but uh, generally speaking, we want to work in our areas of specialty where we are the most productive, where we are the most appreciated, and then we want to let other people work in their areas of, of specialty and of genius uh, because that's where we have the wealthiest lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I'm certainly guilty of romanticizing the off-grid homesteading lifestyle myself, but I, I know in the uh, smarter part of my brain that's no way to live for me and uh, I kind of shy away from it. The romantic, the, uh, the, the, the very best off-grid lifestyle comes when you have some form of work that you really enjoy, be it doing scientific yeah. experiments or creating YouTube videos or writing the next greatest American novel, and you have a few hundred thousand dollars a year coming in. That way you can buy all your toys, you can have your tractors, you can have all the people, and then you can give yourself the satisfaction of looking out over your flocks and your herds that other people take care of and your beautifully painted okay. stables, etc. But it's all based upon that side income that comes from where you actually earn a lot of money. That's the best lifestyle to have. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And and one 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 kind of argument, there is a good one good reason to do do it yourself on a lot of jobs is to know for sure you never want to do them again. I, I refinished floors once and I and I was more than happy to pay for floor installation the next time rather than refinishing them because it, it almost killed me so. every time i talk about uh, how i don't yeah. i don't love diy projects I, I feel like i'm betraying my father a little bit because one of the things that my dad yeah. worked hard when i was younger was in addition to education <laughs> he worked hard to make give us opportunities to do work and to do manual labor a lot. Uh, so I spent a summer when I was in middle school, I spent a summer working for a tile setter as a helper on tile jobs. Uh, I've spent time working on farms. I've spent time doing construction work, various kinds of carpentry and, and all kinds of different stuff. Uh, I've done some electrical work here and there. And so what I have learned from those things, every one of them is what I do not want to do and where I'm not good. And in hindsight, <laughs> you know, I appreciate that I'm actually pretty capable. I remember when I was a senior in high school, we got together to build our senior class float on a trailer to bring along behind. And I was surprised because I didn't think I was much of a carpenter. I was surprised that I was one of just a handful of guys who had a, a concept of basic construction techniques and how to drive a toenail into a piece of two by four and how to put something that's not going to fall off, uh, you know, put, put together some random float that's going to actually hold together. But I actually consider it very, very a good part of my experience that I've done enough of those kinds of jobs to know that I do not want to do those things for the rest of my life. And so it, it motivated me to not spend my time there because I just found it so uh, 
physically draining and um, and mentally b- boring and that was a was a useful skill for me so i hope to impart the same lessons to my children to either give them the chance to say hey they're my children are good at working with their hands and they find great satisfaction in it and they're good at it or to learn the same lessons that i personally have learned go ahead with your with your uh, comment of the day john yeah, yeah for sure yeah we'll do we'll do i just i just read my kids uh little house in the prairie and i felt very uh uh, humbled by how much stuff the uh, father could do and build the house and everything and all the different skills he had, so for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, my question is uh, kind of just a boring one about real estate. I think I, I know the proper answer, uh, but I figured I'd run it by you. Um, my in-laws have a house that they bought from another family member about nine or ten years ago. Um, it wasn't bought because they intended to keep it for uh, an investment. It was just kind of a circumstance of the family that they ended up buying this house. It's very close to where they live, uh, right across the street, in fact. Um, it's appreciated quite a bit, and now they're getting to the point where they don't... I, I don't think they ever really wanted to have a rental home, but um, it's appreciated quite a bit. And some of the other factors, like having a person in the family to do all the um, all of the repairs, uh, he's getting a bit older and not as nimble as he used to be to be able to get over and do all those repairs. So some things that, that made it attractive to be an unintended landlord uh, are kind of falling away. And I, I simply told them, you know, it's probably just time to sell it. Uh, some of the kids are talking about uh, the, the, the what they're missing out on there. And, and the way I could describe it to them, I think I'm correct in saying that, well, they're going to miss out um, rather than their parents keeping it until they die and passing it on to the children to get the step up value. Which right now I think it has gained somewhere in the three hundred or three hundred fifty thousand mark. Um, that is significant, and they could save a lot of taxes on that. But that's really the only thing I can see as a benefit. And if you're talking about you know fifteen percent capital gains tax, uh, you know somewhere in the order of fifty thousand dollars, I said, is that really worth it for your parents to keep a uh, a house that they really don't want to or don't necessarily want to or need to keep? Um, uh, and I think no, but uh, obviously it's their decision to make. So I don't know if there's any other thoughts I need to bring to the table there to give them a full, uh, a full breadth of the conversation, um, or if I'm thinking about that correctly. What do you think would happen to the money if, uh, if the house were sold? What do you think would happen with the money, the profits? Um, it would it would go to the to help the parents have a probably more secure uh, retirement. Although they're very good savers, I don't. I don't think they're in any jeopardy of having a bad retirement. Uh, they're just getting to retirement age, by the way. And I think one of them is still working part-time just to have something to do. Uh, the other one's in her first year of retirement. And um, uh, who knows if she'll go back to work or, or whatever. But I think they're fairly good uh, financially. So it might just go to a nest egg. Maybe, maybe it would go to t- some uh, um uh, less desirable traits, maybe they gamble away. I don't know, but um, I don't think it's necessary for their financial security if that's what you mean. Well, here are the things that go through my mind. Taxes are are a question, but I think you're right to demote that to a relatively low importance because you're talking about long term capital gains taxes. Uh, there's depending on how good their records are. Yes, they may have some. Uh, some gain, but it's not going to be that big of a deal. Uh, my first question is what happens to the money? The beautiful thing about real estate is, especially for normal people who aren't engaged in just every couple of years borrowing every last penny of equity out of their property, 
Real estate allows people to have an asset that produces an income where they don't spend the principal. And that's a uniquely beneficial thing for many people. That's also beneficial with children, right? You mentioned the children, which is why I wondered what the ownership here is. Uh, it's really nice if you have an asset that kind of can't be sold, uh, especially when you're thinking about multi-generational planning. It's nice if you have an asset that is worth a lot of money but can't really be sold and can't uh, and won't be sold because it has some kind of value to the family. That allows the family to maintain wealth but not to fritter it away. Cash is is wonderful, but cash spends really easily. Real estate doesn't spend very easily. And so I ask myself, is this the kind of property that should be sold or is this the kind of because we don't need it anymore and it's just it was a good it was a good move but it's not useful now or is this the kind of property that shouldn't be sold because it would be useful to have in the family and to have as a piece of wealth that could continue to produce dividends down through the ages. Now this next question I ask myself is could this real estate fill a unique role in the retirement and financial planning of the parents who own it? The nice thing related to what I just said, the nice thing about real estate is in an ideal scenario, if I could have, if, big if here, but if I could have every retirement planning client that I encounter have a handful of houses and the bulk of their assets in, in mutual fund stocks, et cetera, I would be tickled pink because what happens is those houses balance people's concerns in a way that the paper assets, which are non-tangible and feel risky to people, those houses are more familiar to them. And so when markets are down as a financial planner and you're talking to someone, you're saying, listen, markets are down 30%, markets are down 40%, there's fear everywhere, don't sell, don't sell. It's nice to say, look, you guys over here, you got $4,000 coming in from your rental real estate portfolio, you're fine, right? You don't need to have all this. Just, just, just ignore the statements for the next year. Let's let this market clear. Let's just relax. And so that the fact that the houses are usually uncorrelated, and I don't want to misstate that, let's just say less correlated to things like large equity markets, etc. And then also the fact that they're tangible, that people understand them in a way that nobody understands stocks and mutual funds, then I like that from a diversification perspective. And so I think it's valuable to have, and it for, for the reason stated, that it's just it's nice to have that income that comes in. It's nice to know there's a bunch of gains sitting there. It's nice to know we have a paid-off house that we could access if we needed it. That said, uh, I think people often find themselves to either be real estate people or not to be real estate people. And it sounds like um, these people might not be real estate people like okay well we bought it because it showed up and it's actually turned out to be a good move but we don't really want to be real estate people in the future uh, in my experience many people once they buy a house they quickly learn meaning a rental house and they go through it for a couple of years they quickly find out either yeah I, I can handle this I can learn these skills and I'm, I'm good at I'm a real estate guy or I'm not I don't want to deal with it in that case I say sell the house put the money in, in mutual funds and and, and go on uh, because if they're looking for productive assets that don't require the difficulty, don't require the time, don't require the trips to Home Depot, et cetera, then I think certainly there's no question that mutual funds are superior, vastly superior to, to that piece of real estate. 
but those are the additional questions that I would ask. Is this going to be a useful uh, part of their portfolio, uh, et cetera? I, I think that... <laughs> You know, as a, as a financial planner, you recognize that people who just have one or two houses often don't, you know, they, they often significantly under, underperform capital markets. But I still feel like it brings a good amount of mental security to people to know I have this house here that's available for me that's creating rental income. So I can't give you a clear yes yeah, or no, but yeah. that is what I think about. No, that's 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 a good way to think about it. I did. It's uh, a good thing to consider the the realness of it. Cause they're, while they're good savers, they're not. I wouldn't say they're financially savvy as far as uh, anything with regarding markets. It's all a big mystery to them. Um, so it's having something real could help them uh, mentally in the future. Uh, it's a good good aspect of it. I'll bring up. Super, um, dang, super I, dangerous I, I, for people I, I, to, to, to say it's all a mystery to me. It's really dangerous, right? Because what happens is right. they they. You know, they, they can take taken advantage of really easily and they can do dumb things because, oh, it's all a mystery to me. And so this is one of the th reasons why I think that real estate has been so productive at helping people build wealth. It has such big dollar signs behind it. People understand it intuitively because they've always lived in houses. They understand the value that a house has. They know a market. They understand what's necessary. Houses are big dollar figure things, so they're hard to sell. They're expensive to sell. People don't just freak out when the market goes down 5%. They don't, they don't get marked to the market every day. You don't get a statement every day on your iPhone telling you, here's what your house is worth. And so because of that benign neglect, real estate generally works out for people. Whereas uh, yeah. the, with stocks and, and mutual funds, uh, for the unsophisticated, they often wind up making these errors when they could be avoided if they would just apply that same uh, principle of benign neglect. Yeah, no, good, 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 good thoughts. I appreciate all that. Thank you. Well, thank you for helping them to think it through clearly and uh, helping them to come to a good decision. We go to seven hundred three. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. My name is Jim, and I have a, I hope, quick question for you. Um, the synopsis is: My dad is trying to convert his SEP IRA to Roth, do a Roth conversion on it, um, a little, a little bit of amount per year. Um, the little background on him, 70 year old single on only on social security. So he doesn't have to file a tax return now, obviously will when he has to start taking RMDs or he starts converting. Um, he's got a SEP IRA, all taxable, approximately a million dollars. Um, for him, RMDs will start at 72 instead of 70 and a half. He's looking at doing the Roth conversion and, uh, let's see. He's aware the Roth conversion is going to count his income and he's going to have to file tax returns. Uh, wants to stay in the no higher than 24% bracket, which is about 170 for a single person. Because um, <clears throat> uh, when he takes his regular RMDs, which is going to be about forty to $50,000 a year, that's automatically going to put him in the 22% bracket. So he figures that the 24% bracket is marginal, marginal cost to get the benefits of a Roth. Um, the real question for you is, uh, do you see what downsides are there to this? Well, before I answer that, what upside is yeah. he hoping to get? Why does he think that he's served well by a Roth conversion? See, my, my brothers and I are the, are the um, beneficiaries of it. He, he does not pull money out of it. I cannot convince him to take a dollar out of it. And he's basically looking to pass it on to us. 
Um, all three of us are going to be in the 22% or higher bracket. And he figures if it can grow tax-free over the next, he's estimating 10 years, um, he, he just thinks that he, he's a very anti-tax guy. And he, you know, he just thinks that this is going to be a better option uh, for him to give to us to not have, so we don't have to pay taxes on it later. He hopes to start converting it now at about one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and then you know he can get it all converted to Roth. It'll grow a bit, and then you know everything's tax free after that. Okay, so I think that I think that that answer that you gave is the answer that makes this a good move. Uh, meaning what he's trying to do is he's trying to pay taxes at a predictable rate that he can control now based upon the amount of money that he converts. And he's trying to move yep. it into a Roth IRA where he won't have to take required minimum distributions with the goal that he right. lives a long and healthy life for his entire lifetime he gets to enjoy that money being tax-free. And then at his death, then you would be the beneficiaries of the Roth IRA, and you would be able to maintain that tax-free nature for a significant amount of time, depending on what the actual rules are at the time of his death based upon the inheritance of a Roth IRA. I say that because this is one of those areas where there's certain to be change, right? Traditionally, we would yep. say, well, you could have put it into a stretch IRA and, and take it out. And then in the recent round of tax Correct. legislation, there were some new rules imposed. And so we don't know what those rules are going to be 30 years from now. Uh, all we know yeah. is that uh, if he keeps it in the SEP mm -hmm. IRA and then he dies, then your you as beneficiaries will have to pay full income taxes on it as you take it out. Of course, you can still do some stretch IRA calculations, et cetera. But, uh, so, and also we know that if he keeps it in the SEP IRA, he'll have to start doing required minimum distribution. So I think Correct. that, I think that here your uh, this is a good reason to do a distribution. So now the question you asked me is what are the downsides? I'd say number one downside, uh, would just be that you're going ahead and locking in the taxes now. Uh, and is it possible that instead of taxes going up in the future, that taxes go down in the future uh, or that there's some other wrinkle that comes out uh, that's unknowable. And so, you know, you always hate to pay taxes. If there's ever a time when you can defer taxes to the future, you always try to do that. And so in this case is one of those questions where maybe something changes in the future, but of course I think it's unlikely. So that's one that's, that's not really a downside. Go ahead. He and I have spoken about that, you know, the, the future risk and he and I are both, as I think you've said in the past time or two, uh, that overall ta tax rates may go up and down and so on and so forth. But in general, they generally don't fluctuate a dramatic amount to make a huge difference. I mean, there's a, there's a time or two in history that it has, but over the last 20, 25 years, our, our tax brackets have stayed fairly stable within reason. Exactly. For, for, but, you know, for up to uh, $150,000, dollars a year. You know, obviously on those that make more, it fluctuates more. But, you know, for the, for the middle class, it is, uh, seems to be fairly stable over the last 20, 25 years. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm, I concur with that. That is my, my personal analysis. 
as well that any changes are have, have generally shown themselves to be fairly small their changes at the margin and it seems to me that the taxing authorities have feel like they've pretty well dialed in their laffer curve that they're at the optimal yep. amount to get the most tax revenue out of the population with the least amount of noise and so taxes are a political tool that politicians press on that we're going to raise taxes on the rich or we're going to lower taxes on business people and on the middle class etc but when they actually have the opportunity to pass legislation generally it seems like they're unpersuaded to make any significant changes and so that the changes are relatively small and i think it's simply because they've homed in on the fact that we've got the we've got a precisely very efficient tax code and i and i, I think it's i say from personal experience that this is true right i find the united states kind of maddening because um, the taxes are not so low that you just feel like you know what it's wonderful i'm just i'm in the best place in the world because i'm i'm in a tax haven on the other hand they're not so high that they're so uncomfortable that they push you out uh frequent you know it's not there's some people who some people not not all most people just live where they live because they want they like being there but some people will leave a sweden <laughs> or leave uh, a, a, right. a holland uh to go somewhere else right. uh, leave the netherlands to go somewhere else but very rarely does anybody leave the United States for tax planning. And so they've kind of got this sweet middle zone success story where we're not too high, we're not too low, and we get a lot of tax revenue out. So I think that they've, I think yeah. that they've dialed in that, uh, that they're happy with where things are at. Um, I don't see many downsides. I think that this is an appropriate situation to do the, to do the conversion. Uh, I think that your father's uh, intention for you to inherit the money uh, in the best way possible is is excellent. The only thing that tickles at the back of my head mm. is I would look to see if he's charitably minded and ask myself, does he have any personal charitable goals that he would like to use this SEP IRA to fund um, in addition to an inheritance for his children? Uh, because if he set up a charitable organization, even if that was his own fund or, or made some kind of charitable transfer with a direct transfer of the SEP IRA, I think that would be a superior move from a tax perspective. But beyond that, uh, as long I think your analysis is good, and I think this is a good a good situation for a uh, a Roth conversion. Um, great, thank you. Um, I've got one more question in relation to this. Um, at a million dollars a year, he's 70, he's got two years before he can, uh, before he has to take RMDs. Um, so assuming he does this at 150K a year um, over the next two years, that's going to reduce the IRA without any growth or anything down to 700. Now, he still, from my understanding is, and I, if you can confirm this, I'd appreciate it. Um, after age after 72, he's going to take his RMDs of, uh, about twenty-eight to thirty thousand dollars a year, based upon the seven hundred thousand, and he can still do above that. He can still do Roth conversions after he has started his RMD. Is that? Am I thinking that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. You can do Roth conversions anytime that you want. Absolutely, there's, there's no problem there at all. But but you still can't. It, your RMD cannot count as part of that Roth conversion, is right. my understanding. That's my understanding okay. as well. Yeah, the RMDs have okay. to go into a taxable account. And if he doesn't have yeah. earned income, mm -hmm. then the, those RMDs yeah. would have to go into the taxable account. So, correct. That's my gotcha. understanding. And, and along those same lines, 
Um, say, you know, in two years, it's 700. So he starts his RMD, which is going to be about 30,000 a year ballpark. Um, if he then does an extra $100,000 a year, will his RMDs from 72 to say 77, will his RMDs go down because that's recalculated every year? Yes. Because, because the balance is much lower. Exactly. Yes. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Josh, yeah. thank you so much. You've answered all my questions and I just wanted to, you know, it's a big financial move for my dad. Of course. Um, he, he's worked in the oil field forever and he just had, you know, he was looking for some maybe confirmation bias, if you will. Yeah. But if nothing else, uh, he was just looking to bounce, bounce some ideas and uh, I figured I'd give you a call. And I want to say thank you for doing this for your Patreon um, people. It's a, it's a very valuable thing. And um, I think that the Patreon cost is well worth, well underpaid for what the information I received today. So thank you. <laughs> Good. That's the goal. I tell people, I tell people, and sometimes it seems like they don't understand if you want the, the cheapest way to talk to me, <laughs> as long as you don't mind someone hearing the sound of your voice and uh, airing out and my, my choosing how long it is, the cheapest way to talk to me is to jump on one of these Friday Q&A calls. And with that, we go to Kristen. Kristen, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. This is very exciting for me. I'm a brand new Patreon. Um, so my question is, um, I, I am thinking of buying a vacation home abroad, um, somewhere in Central America. And my interest is peaked in El Salvador um, because I'm my husband and I are Bitcoiners, and we love the idea of maybe a Plan B residence over there. Um, and the housing is affordable at this time, and we might want to possibly retire there. But most of all, it would just be a vacation home and hopefully something that we could rent out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've basically saved up $100,000 to put toward it so far. Uh, which is not enough, I think, to pay a full cash value. So my question is, should we uh, keep saving up and just wait for the right time? and Or should we take some financing? Um, what's an appropriate amount of money to spend on something like this? It does seem very uh, luxurious <laughs> purchase that we're not used to buying, but we are debt-free. We're actually homesteaders in the country great <laughs> which is kind of funny uh, after my homesteader <laughs> bashing <laughs> oh yeah and we love it but my husband does have a day job and exactly. uh we do hire people i just wrote a big fat check today for a fencer <laughs> but anyway um yeah just kind of wanting to get some advice from someone who's not trying to sell us a home abroad um and maybe a little pep talk about how to make this uh purchase appropriately in a way that's not going to stress me out, um, in a way that's not going to make me regret that I did this. Um, right. And another thing, because we are homesteaders, it's not really possible to spend a huge amount of time out there at the moment. Um, right. We could probably get away for a couple weeks a year. So I don't know if that affects your answer. Good. Do you like going to El Salvador? I've never been. Okay. That's step one. I like going to Costa Rica. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's step one. Uh, Because you want to make sure, if you're going to buy a vacation home, you want to make sure that you buy somewhere that you like and that you're actually going to go and do it. Especially 
when you're thinking about doing it uh, abroad. Where in the United States is your primary homestead? What, what region? We're in southeastern Arizona. Okay. Um, so just trying to think of flights in and out of Central America. You would always have to connect through either L.A. or Texas or Florida from Arizona. I doubt there are any direct flights. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So here are some of the questions that I would raise, and I would be cautious and slow to do it, and I'll give you some arguments as to why for you to consider. Uh, the second question, do you speak Spanish or does your husband speak Spanish? No, but I'm trying to learn. Good. Third question, if you did buy a property, not having yet gone there, describe to me what your dream property would look like. I'm actually uh, looking at a development. Mm -hmm. um, so my dream property would be turnkey. Mm -hmm. That included a property manager right? because I, I don't want to be a hands-on landlord. Um, it would be like a, a tiny house or a little, little surf cottage uh, by the beach. Okay. So uh, something not in a condominium, uh, not a big building, but some kind of freestanding structure, uh, and you want a freestanding house, but in a development that somebody is is has is developing as a centrally planned community. Yes, exactly. I have my eye on one that's in development right now. And, and how it's much a series they, of tiny homes? How much are they asking for those? Anywhere between one twenty five to one seventy five. Okay. So you so what you're considering is not wrong. Uh, I would just I would caution you and I would say that you want to be very clear on what you're actually paying for. And I'll give you some insight into the Central American marketplace. So to begin with, uh, if you're going to choose a vacation home, you need to choose a place that you actually like. Which, And I would really want you to spend several significant vacations in this place before you actually committed to a, a house. Uh, and make sure that you actually like going there. And that liking going there needs to be uh, everything associated with liking going there. Meaning, um, that's why I asked about airline connections, right? Do you want to connect through? It's kind of a hassle if you have to fly from Tucson to Houston and all of the 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 connections are stink, right? Or you fly from Tucson to Miami and there is a probably a two and a half hour flight. And then you sit in Miami for four hours. And then it's another two and a half hours from Miami back in the West to El Salvador. And now to get back and forth is a, is a whole day's travel. And it's really annoying to you. On the other hand, if you could find something that's a direct two hour shot, uh, then that's a, that's a much lower and a much easier thing to do. One of the things that you need to be very aware of when dealing with Central America specifically, and this is true in many places outside the United States, not all, but it is definitely true in Central America, property does not move fast like you're accustomed to in the United States. The values thus are very hard to say. 
In the United States, especially right now, you can sell a property and you can know a good idea of what the price is. You can sell a property in a couple of weeks. I don't know if anywhere in the United States that has a slow real estate market. Uh, you can sell a property and the market is extremely efficient. So you know what the price that you're getting in as and you know what the price that you can get out is. And so that allows you to plan. You go and you say, hey, I bought this property. It's $125,000 and now I can sell it um, and I can get out of it. And so you know your exit plan. That is not true in any way, shape, or form in any place in Central America. Um, if it is true, the only place it would be true would be a place like Panama City with downtown apartments in well-established uh, well-established high-rise apartment buildings. Um, there's nowhere else or Mexico City in very desirable uh, neighborhoods and very established places. That's where you could sell a property quickly. Everywhere else in Central America, you would expect that if you wanted to sell a property, minimum you should plan on a couple of years um, because there's no efficient marketing of a property. There's no central database. There's no central system, and there's not a lot of demand, uh, especially the kinds of properties that you are interested in. Uh, there's not a lot of local demand for those properties. Uh, the reason I say there's not a lot of local demand, let me explain to you how Central America works. It's very different than the United States. In Central America, you have a much greater wealth disparity than you have in the United States. In the United States, there is a massive middle class where you have um, many, many people who have the means to afford middle-class lifestyle. The, the, the United States has the strongest middle class of any country in the world. It's wonderful. But in Central America, you don't have that. In, in Central America, you have a very, very small middle class. You rather have a small upper class and a very large lower class. The upper class is exceedingly wealthy. Uh, you have many, many very, very wealthy people all throughout Central America. And they live like wealthy people, which means they have nice houses, they have nice plantations, they have nice apartments, they have nice cars, um, they have um, large estates uh, with multiple uh, employees working for them on their estates, etc. They're not interested in a beach shack somewhere. They're not interested in a tiny house. They're not interested in some dinky little apartment. They're interested in top-level properties that are created for wealthy people, and they have the means to afford it. On the other hand, you have a huge lower class, and that lower class is not interested in buying any kind of property that you would actually live in. Why? Well, because the lower class can build for itself an appropriate home. So unlike in the United States where no poor person can build his own home, you can't afford it because you can't afford to comply with code enforcement. You can't afford to do it all at once. You can't afford to get your plans through city hall. Like poor people in the United States can't build their own houses. But in Central America, you can. You can go out and you can get some wood from the local rough cut lumber from the local sawmill and you can save up and you can get a few pieces of tin and you can build a shack and you can live in the shack. And everywhere that you will go in El Salvador where somebody is building a community there are plenty of people who are already living there but they're they built their house for two thousand dollars three thousand dollars a thousand dollars etc and so the kind of property that you're looking at is not the kind of property that you will be able to sell uh, very quickly so you need to know that going in that, and be thoughtful and, and recognize, hey, if I buy this property, I'm going to own this property for a very long time and or I'm going to have to sell it to another foreigner. Uh, 
So now let's talk about the foreign property market. So the development that you're looking at is almost certainly, if it has a website, and if it's something that you have that has crossed your uh, computer screen, that development is almost certainly a development that has been created for expats, for foreigners, uh, be it for, for vacationing foreigners or, uh, or just expats living in El Salvador, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, you might find it to be a wonderful community. You might really enjoy it. Uh, there'll be a very, uh, really fun international flair. There's lots of other expats that you would be able to speak with in English. You can enjoy your time together. Um, it's, it's not bad to live in an expat bubble, uh, in El Salvador. You might really enjoy it. And the kinds of people who would also be interested in a tiny house or a, a surf shack on the beach might just be per- your perfect people that you really want to enjoy being with. But you are paying a very significant financial premium for that property because you are compensating the developer who took had the vision and the foresight and took the financial risk to put the land together to get the appropriate zoning permits, to get it all titled and marked out and surveyed and to go ahead and build the structures, etc. And that developer probably has a significant inventory. And so let's say that you, you you buy the property and five years from now you want to sell it. The developer is still going to probably have a sales office where he's still building other properties and selling those other properties. And so why would somebody come and buy your five-year-old lived-in property and not simply go and buy one of the brand new ones from the developer? There could be good reasons why. You might develop the place and it's beautiful. You might have really mature fruit trees. And you know, for me, if I could go in and buy a five-year-old house, but that five-year-old house is surrounded by a food forest, whereas the brand new one has been, the ground has been raised and it's just denuded earth and I've got to do it all, man, I'll, I'll take the five-year-old house with the food forest any day of the week. But you need to think about this going in. So those should be some big warning flags to say to you that if you go into this type of property, you want to make sure that you actually like it and that you like being there and you're going to get good use out of it, that you're going to fly down and spend significant amounts of time there, that your family is going to want to come and be with you there, or that you're going to actually use it. Because the property markets in um, all of Central America are simply wildly different than everything that you are accustomed to in the United States. So can buying a property be a great thing? Absolutely. If you buy a property that you love and that you love going to and that you're going to want to continue to go to for many years, then I say go for it, right? If you can afford it, go for it. Buy it, make use of it because you'll enjoy it. If your family enjoys it, maybe it's uh, it's got a wonderful surf break and you just love going down there, your children love it or your friends loved it, um, go for it. Um, there's, is there, is there a good chance that these properties, uh, that are purchased today will be worth more a couple decades from now? Almost certainly, right? All of the, the economies in Central America are growing with the exception perhaps of Nicaragua. Um, the, the, the business climate has improved. El Salvador just elected a, a, a young, uh, kind of forward, they have a young forward thinking president. Uh, many of these countries have, have made tremendous progress in reducing corruption, increasing business friendliness, et cetera. There's every reason to think that there's good potential for growth in the future. Uh, I don't expect most, I don't expect Coast, sorry, um, Central America to be the kind of the war-torn 
uh, violent place that it was during the 1980s. I don't, I don't personally expect that to happen again, again, with big exception of Nicaragua right now. Uh, but, but still that's a long-term perspective. And if you're looking at it from a financial perspective, I think you would find many, many markets that seem much more attractive in terms of their growth potential than most places in Central America. So, um, so my, so that, that would be my caution to say, don't buy a property because it looks good on, in the pictures. Go, first thing you do is go there, spend some time there, find some other Bitcoiners who are also doing that, check out where they're going. I think there is a good, good reason to think that El Salvador may indeed have some growth due to the Bitcoin economy. That There are many people who are overnight Bitcoin millionaires who are going there and, and seeking to encourage them for their forward-thinking stance on, on making Bitcoin a, a, a required currency to be accepted. But having spent a good amount of time in Central America, I would caution you that, that go and live it, spend several good vacations there, before you actually go and pull the trigger on a property. One more kind of piece of advice, and then I'll, I'll await your response. But before you go and you buy in a planned community, make sure that that planned community is going to offer you something significant that uh, that is not available in another, uh, that's not available in the open market. Uh, and here is where, since you don't, speak fluent Spanish and you are a foreigner, I would strongly urge you to find a local person, uh, develop some local contacts. Those can begin with simply social contacts. Uh, you might meet some people who live there, meet some expats. Uh, you might meet a missionary or meet someone who retired down there, etc. And then you'll probably want to find some professional contacts, right? Find a local lawyer. Usually uh, a local lawyer is one of the best uh, information brokers and hire the lawyer to be your representative and to look for some other properties. Because if you're looking to, to spend your money well, uh, for $100,000, without question, if you could work with an appropriate local, you could get far more land and and probably more opportunity for a house than what the developer is offering you. And go and see the development with your eyes to say, is this a place that I actually want to live in? Let me give you an example. Uh, first, all throughout Central America are all kinds of developments where somebody came in and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to make a buck um, developing property and selling it to rich Americans and they come in and they just never finish the development and you'll find that there's this big elaborate gate and then the road is just destroyed in front and you've got no recourse right you're left with something that is totally uh, that it's not worthless but it's pretty much worthless uh, because you have no recourse there's no legal recourse you won't get anywhere in the courts and if the developer just takes the money and disappears then everyone who actually bought property in that development is left without recourse and many times the development doesn't get finished and so you need to be very thoughtful and get good legal advice to make sure that you're getting in at a phase in which it's appropriate there are some developments that are really special um my favorite development in Central America is Rancho Santana, uh, which is one that Mark Ford was involved in developing in Nicaragua, San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. And it is just, it's stunning, right? It's amazing. Um, but it's amazing because uh, Mark and his, his co-investors, they sank 
they're, 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 it was a passion project for them, right? They bought this huge ranch and they just started to develop it. And it's luxury. And they have committed themselves to maintaining that standard of luxury. And it's the kind of standard that, that there is a big market for because the luxury market. A good, another good example would be in Costa Rica, right? You've got Los Sueños, uh, the development in Jaco. Um, it's a luxury development uh, and it's, it's going to always have that luxury appeal. Uh, because uh, it's convenient, right? You can fly into Costa Rica in an hour. You can be at your door in, in Hako, uh, hour and a half from hour to hour and a half from the airport. You can uh, you have the Marriott Hotel there, uh, which is an attraction for many tourists. You have the yacht club. You've got kind of this high end stuff, and it's a luxury development that's very proven. Uh, and so I think these are the kinds of developments, and they're all over Central America. You can find them, but they're not at the low end the low end side, their luxury developments. And I think there's a good, if you're looking for a luxury vacation home, there's a good argument for them. But I would be nervous myself, uh, especially without having spent significant amount of time, amount of time there vacationing or without having a personal acquaintance with there are, there are expats, um, developing all kinds of properties all throughout Central America. And they're often labors of love, right? Little eco-villages, little things like that. And so if you can find a labor of love where there's somebody who's building something because they're committed to it and they're living there, then yes, go all in. Just make sure that this 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 one that you're involved in is does have that, that expression. Um, that's my overview. Awesome. Thank you. I think I was feeling like I needed to get in while prices were kind of still low in the region before things blow up because of Bitcoin. And I think I was kind of spiraling into an impulse buy perhaps. Right. Um, and I think I just need to chill out and I need to go there. And I mean, if prices rise in the next few years, so be it. I'll just keep on saving. Yeah. You need to go there and you need to make sure I do not expect, um, do I, I think that Bitcoin may have some influence on El Salvador, but El Salvador is starting from a very a, a position significantly at the rear. El Salvador is known for having the highest murder rate in Central America. Um, I think the fear that people have of that is overblown. Generally, virtually all of the violence that happens in in Mexico, in anywhere in Central America, virtually all of the violence is related to drugs, meaning people that are buying drugs, right, going and literally buying drugs on the beach in Mexico and get targeted, or who are involved in the, in the drug trade and the gang wars that are associated with them. But El Salvador has had its reputation significantly tarnished by that. And, and it's one of those things where um, the, the reputation of the reputation of El Salvador is is the worst, in my opinion, of any country in Central America. Um, yeah, I, would, I don't need to qualify it. I would say I think their reputation is the worst. And so, again, I think oftentimes it's overblown. But you, most people who don't have some confidence from traveling in the region are going to be dissuaded from that and so you just want to be recognized that it's starting from a backwards position and it's going to take some time to work those things out so uh, i say yeah get in early but make sure that you go slow because this is the kind of of market where there's no 
clear and obvious wins. I think that if you're looking from an investment perspective, there are many other places in the world that are much more exciting from an investment perspective. The reason you would go to El Salvador would be, hey, I've got some Bitcoin in this wallet on the side here. I want to do a direct Bitcoin transaction. El Salvador, I can do that in El Salvador. And I like going there. I enjoy spending time there. We got this little corner where some other Bitcoins are, Bitcoiners are also setting up shop where we're all going ahead and establishing our, our homes together and we like each other, then I think that there's a good reason for you to do it. But I wouldn't just jump in out of, out of a fear that, uh, that you're going to miss out. I don't think you're going to miss out. All right. Three, one, two, four. It uh, doesn't matter. Five colors left. Peter, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. I want to talk about um, European inheritance taxes. I'll do my best. <laughs> Let me just say that. I don't, I don't promise anything. I'll I do my best. trying to stump you. <laughs> I think you may have. I could, I could do U.S. inheritance taxes all day long, but I'm not good enough to do uh, European. But let's try. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the exact specifics are, are really what I'm looking for. I think I'm looking for more for just the general strategies to try to reduce them. And obviously, there will be country-specific stuff. But um, I've got friends who have family property in France. Um, and they're trying to figure out um, whether going through some maneuvers to try to equity strip the property with a mortgage on it mm -hmm. um, to reduce the, the value of the property for, for the tax basis purpose is worth it uh, versus just going ahead and paying the taxes. But I was just sort of curious about just kind of what, what some of the strategies you, you can have other than, than just straight out paying it um, in terms of trying to potentially reduce the, the tax. Right. So again, we're outside of my area of expertise. Uh, I want to clarify that up front. Uh, this is definitely a question where you would want to retain a proper French uh, financial planner who understands the ins and outs of French taxation. That's the key. Uh, what I would point out is that there are a couple of options, things that, um, things that uh, are worth paying attention to. Thing number one, it's important to note, especially when we're dealing with the difference between Europe and the United States, and especially France, that, and, and let me just clarify, you're, this is not you that you're working on this problem. This is some friends of yours, and you're just kind of meditating on their question and wondering if there are any options for theirs. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And these friends, are they born and bred raised native French or are they expats who have French connections? Uh, no, they're, they're, uh, they're French. Their parents are French. Uh, they're, they're, they're actually dual U S French citizens, but they are, they are straight up French. Okay. So the dual citizenship thing is actually complex. Um, but let's just give you a quick overview and I won't be able to give you many details. Let's give a quick overview. Number one, it's important to recognize that the, the attitude and the practice around taxation and tax paying is exceedingly different between France and the United States. In the United States, uh, first of all, the United States has the highest rate of tax compliance of any country in the world. Uh, regularly, when the surveys are done of people paying their taxes, People in the United States pay their taxes as they are calculated and owed at a higher rate than any other country 
in the world. Even other countries that rank very highly, such as Germany, uh, still the United States comes out with a higher um, higher uh, payment rate of people actually paying their taxes as they are assessed and as they're owed. This is often uh, surprising to people because as U.S. Americans, we like to gripe a lot about our taxes. We argue about them. We gripe about them. We have lots of loud people who, you know, these loud, crazy libertarians who believe that taxation is theft and they get all grumpy when they think that they should pay any taxes. But the truth is that there is a deep-seated belief in the U.S. American system that you should pay your taxes. And thus, we have a system that's, that that's somewhat straightforward and people comply. That is not the same in uh, the French context. The French context is much more of a matter of uh, a battle, right? An argument. And there's going to be some negotiations involved between the tax authorities and the individual taxpayers. You don't just, in the United States, if you get a bill from the IRS and they say, you owe us X amount of dollars, you pull out your checkbook and you write it. Uh, it's not the same in the French culture. Uh, if you get a bill from the tax authorities in France, you start working on it. You think, well, okay, how are we going to do it? Uh, now, I wouldn't presume to go beyond that. I know that that much is true, and I wouldn't go beyond that in my personal analysis. But I would say that here's where the local knowledge is so important, that it's not like in the United States where there's a, there's a set of techniques and we can look through the book, et cetera. We need to actually go and say, who are the local taxing authorities? Who's going to be doing the assessment? What are the opportunities for negotiation? How does the system work, et cetera? So that would be the first thing. Second thing is that unlike the United States, which has global taxation, the tax bill that a, uh, a French citizen can uh, legally owe is based upon the behavior of that French citizen. So as a U.S. American, if you've got $150 million, you're going to have to go through the relevant calculations for your inheritance taxes. The actual taxes themselves are somewhat optional. There are an abund there is an abundant repertoire of techniques that can be applied to the reduction of those tax rates. But the whole estate itself uh, is going to be taxed under the U.S. system. And this is where, for your French friends, they're going to have, if their wealth rises to the level of the uh, where they're going to owe inheritance taxes, estate taxes, then they will have to deal with the U.S. system itself separate from the French system. However, a French uh, citizen always has the ability to move his affairs outside of France. And so this is where, to some degree, uh, some form of equity stripping or looking at the estate and figuring out where are the assets and what the assets are and could we move some of those assets to a tax haven, that can be a very effective strategy. It is not an effective strategy for U.S. citizens uh, because you could take, let's say you've got $150 million in the U.S. and you say, oh, I'm just going to move my $150 million from the U. I'm going to move myself outside of the United States. I'm going to go down to my little beachfront resort in El Salvador that I bought with my Bitcoin and I'm going to move my $150 million just simply outside the United States and put it in a tax haven. That's not going to save you anything from a, an estate tax perspective. You can do some sophisticated 
sophisticated planning, uh, and you can start to move some of the money, some of the assets into irrevocable trusts, and you can freeze the assets. You can bring it together under your gift tax exemptions, your estate tax exemptions. There There are techniques that you can do, but the whole offshore thing is not such a direct scenario. However, for a French citizen, those those things are possible. The same French citizen could move to El Salvador or to some other place that's more tax-friendly, could keep his property in France, but could escape over time the French taxation system, uh, even up to and including uh, not owing inheritance taxes on the bulk of his estate. Real estate is always going to be taxed by a local government because that's what a government has control of. A government can control your real estate because they, using their martial power, they control a set of land. That's our current definition of what a, a nation state is. It's a it's a military force that controls, by use of force, uh, a specific area of land. And because of that, the tax authorities, the tax agents of that government have massive power to control your affairs over the land. They own the land. They don't own everything else. So they can't keep your business from moving. They can't keep your intellectual property from moving. They can't keep yourself from moving, but they can control your land. And so there is potentially a whole world of techniques that are available to your friends that are not available to U.S. citizens, where your friends can move themselves to a tax haven. They can keep their property in France. They may move some of the equity out of that property. They may have some negotiations. They may, with the local taxing authorities, they may move the property into trust in some way. Uh, I can't articulate the specific techniques beyond what I've done, uh, but they do have a lot of options. And so what they definitely would want to do is they would want to consult um, a proper professional who is familiar with French law and custom and who could work in that area. And I guarantee those planners are out there and then do a personalized assessment to, to figure out what, uh, what needs to be done with their affairs. All right. Good show. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. It's a fun question though. I would, uh, I, I have, uh, I have uh, in I've spent a lot of money on uh, tax planning materials for Europeans, uh, and uh, so I have a lot of the the data. Then I've I've gone through a good bit of it. I just can't summon it to mind quickly enough to to answer it uh, specifically. Lucas, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, uh, how's it going, Joshua? Have well. a good day. Excellent. So interested in the subject of what I'm going to call baby prep hacking. Um, so I've been listening extensively to your uh, series of podcasts about what to do with young children and homeschooling and babies and diapers and, and everything and sharing it with my wife. And we're, we're starting to talk about, okay, what can you do? What strategically can you put in place financially ahead of or shortly after the birth of your child? Um, things like you know, 529 plans or whole life insurance policies for children. I was wondering, is there anything, anything new, anything that uh, you haven't talked about yet that are just kind of little niche fund strategies for giving yourself a financial advantage by having a baby or giving them a financial advantage? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I encourage, so to be clear, are you currently expecting a baby or is this hypothetical at this point? This is hypothetical at this point, but okay. I, I don't think it'll be too far off. Okay, great. So, I do like to always insert here the topic of birth tourism. I think one of the biggest opportunities that you can give your child at the time of birth 
is access, and, and I mean this financially speaking, is access to uh, a, a country uh, or a region or a set of resources. There is a reason why there is a thriving birth tourism industry in the United States, in Canada, etc. Because for people who are not from these countries, they can achieve for their children a whole new set of opportunities, a whole new set of advantages by virtue of their child being born a citizen of that particular nation. So Americans don't think a lot about this. Because we tend to um, not look outside of our borders for opportunities. We know that we live in the land of opportunity. And so we're not accustomed to thinking I should go and look somewhere else for opportunity. Uh, But this is something that is well worth considering. And so let me give you an example, right? You could, I'm assuming you sound American. Are you living in the United States and you and your wife are both Americans? Yes. Okay. So right now you could go and let's say you were having a child, you could go and you could have the child in Canada. And if you had your child born in Canada, your child would be from birth, a Canadian citizen. You can go to Canada. um, You can rent a nice house or or find a nice hospital or birth center, whatever you wind up doing when it comes time to dealing with the the medical details of the birth. Uh, And you will, your child will be Canadian citizen by virtue of being born, uh, on the soil of Canada, which is a just solely country that offers citizenship to anybody born on its soil. That won't do anything for you or for your wife, but what it would do for your child would be, number one, give your child to the right to be a Canadian citizen, which means your child would always have the right to live in Canada. Your child has the right to work in Canada. Your child would have the right to be educated without cost to your child in Canada at every level of education, your child would have the right to the Canadian government healthcare uh, system uh, by virtue of being a Canadian citizen. And so those four things right there from a financial perspective could be very significant for your child's uh, future, right? You could put money in a 529 account and save money for your child's education Or you could just simply have your child be a Canadian citizen and have the plan be that your child goes to Canada uh, and simply goes to college in Canada, uh, which is much more progressive uh, than the United States with regard to college funding, government health care programs, etc., uh, same, and this is a, I think, a wonderful backup plan. And so, it's a, it's a significantly difficult thing to do. And I think that very few first-time parents are going to be motivated enough to do it. It's difficult. It's difficult for a first-time mother, on top of all of the uh, complications of having a baby, the fears, the the learning style, etc. It's difficult to imagine going to another country, but that is a that is a an opportunity. So if you're looking for kind of benefits, government benefits, then that's a very very simple thing to do and totally legal. You can do it, no no problem at all. You could also look at this in terms of well, where is an opportunity zone, right? Where is there an opportunity for significant financial growth? Where would I want my child to be able to go and work uh, and live? And where would there be investment options, etc.? So you could say, where are the places in the world where there's the highest rates of growth? Uh, now, not this is hard for birth tourism because most countries don't offer birthright citizenship. 
but there are some uh, that do. So an example would be South America, right? If you had a child born in uh, Brazil, is quite commonly talked about, then your child would ha uh, have the legal right to live and work virtually in all of South America as part of Mercosur, uh, which is an alliance of South American nations working together. Uh, if you look forward over the next several decades, it's hard for me personally to believe that Brazil, a nation of a couple hundred million people, plus Argentina, plus Chile, plus Colombia, plus Venezuela, when it comes out of its nightmare, like all these, all these countries, it's hard for me to believe that there's not more opportunities for a faster growth prospect than there is in, say, the United States, which is a more mature and advanced economy. So that would be another way of looking at it. Uh, I won't go on more about birth tourism other than to say that you can look at the world and there are options that you can achieve. Uh, let's say that you had an interest in Europe, right? Many people have an affinity and an attraction to Europe. Europe is hard. It's hard to have a European citizen, but since you, you, you're not currently expecting a baby, it could be possible for you to establish a residency, uh, a legal residency for you and your wife in Europe, and then have your child born in Europe. Uh, and then your child, uh, Portugal would be a good country to look at there uh, and see if you could arrange for your child to be a Portuguese citizen from birth by virtue of you and your wife having Portuguese residence permits, uh, that could be something worth considering. Now, moving yeah, past... I, 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 I love the idea. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, she would be somewhat hesitant with a, with a first child uh, to do that, just wanting some of the comforts and, uh, and closeness of home and being around family for it. Um, but the, the idea is awesome. Yeah. And, and I'm definitely attracted to it. I think that virtually almost no U.S. American first mother, first time mother would ever do birth tourism. Uh, and it's hard for me <laughs> to imagine her saying yes. Uh, my wife and I did it with sure. our third child. Uh, and sure. what I would say is, sorry, our fourth child. And what I would say is that it's doable. We've done it. Uh, having done it, it's much harder than most people think. And most people are not going to actually do it for all the reasons that you stated. But I can't myself help but appreciate the elegance of it as a solution. And there are, and I mm. say that for my international audience, that there is a big difference between you and your wife's situation versus uh, our Afghani friends who are listening, right? Or our Pakistani friends who are listening or our Iraqi or friends or our Haitian friends who are listening, right? Because all of a sudden you and I, you know, you have no concept of how difficult it is to live in the world as a citizen of Afghanistan only. And so if there is a, if there is a, kind of a middle class or upper middle class uh, Afghani couple who is thinking about having a baby, the very best, most important thing that they could do with their money, if they could in any way work it out, is to fix their paperwork problems. And that's, uh, and, and I'm using these words very carefully. There are paperwork problems that, that Afghanis and Pakistanis and Iraqis face. And so it's a big deal, and it would without question be the best twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars spent for those uh, people for that they could invest into their children in order to solve their children's paperwork problems. It's a big, big deal. Now let's come back to your situation uh, personally. 
when you have a new child, I would say the first thing is I always buy a whole life insurance policy for all of my children. Uh, I don't buy generally big ones, uh, but if your financial situation allows you to, I think it's appropriate. I always buy at least a small one, uh, and these are always whole life policies. And then what I do is I make sure that those policies have two things that are very important to me. So number one, I buy small whole life policy and I make sure that it has an additional purchase benefit on it that allows the, that, that where the policy has a guaranteed right to purchase more life insurance in the future at a certain age. And so uh, generally, uh, I think with the policies I own for my children, uh, starting at the age of 20, then I, as the policy owner, can purchase additional life insurance for them uh, every three years. And uh, I usually start with either twenty-five dollars or $50,000 policies, and I can put an additional purchase benefit on the policy of fifty dollars or $100,000 or $150,000. What that means is, let's say I start with a $50,000 policy, and I have usually, I think it's seven opportunities between twenty and forty to add one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I can buy a fifty thousand dollar whole life policy when my child is um, ten days old, and uh, I can't remember. I think the child does have to be at least five days old, seven days old, ten days old, something like that. But I can buy a, a policy within the first month of my child's life when the child has no medical underwriting, no anything. They're not my child. Aren't my children? Aren't scuba diving? They're not learning to fly airplanes and doing anything dangerous at, at zero years old. Uh, and then with that additional purchase benefit, I can increase it in the future without any medical underwriting. I can increase it without any hobby or avocation underwriting. There's no lifestyle questions. And so I have those options to increase it in the future for them. Now, most of the time, this is unnecessary, right? Most of the time, you're not going to need it. Uh, you're just going to keep the policy and maybe you just gift it to your child when your child is 40, something like that. But, uh, but if you need it, right? If you have a child that uh, takes up a major interest in racing cars, uh, if you have a child who takes up an interest in, in becoming an underwater welder or to get a pilot's license, or you have a child that faces medical problems, uh, heart defect, uh, leukemia, um, is a drug addict, um, very depressed, suicidal. Like These are the kinds of things that can make a big, big difference for you. Knowing that you can buy life insurance for your children at the, in the future is a very nice thing. you got to be careful because these policies are not term insurance policies. And so to add on $150,000, you're buying a $150,000 whole life policy uh, for your children at every time. But to, to know that I could turn my $50,000 policy into an excess of a million dollar policy for each of my children, I really appreciate that. And I think that's useful. These policies do, do are, are terrible for cash accumulation. Um, the cost of the additional purchase benefit, and then I also put a waiver of premium benefit on there, where if the child is ever disabled, then the premiums get waived on the policy. But um, on all my children's ones, there's a clause where the, the comp I can still exercise the additional purchase benefit and the premiums are, are uh, included. The cost of those benefits, while very modest on a monthly basis, I'm not sure. I don't even remember how much these policies cost. I think they're... 30 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, something like that. I can't remember. Um, but it's very modest on a monthly basis. But what these 
but the most of the cost goes straight to insurance and to these additional purchase benefits, et cetera. And so the cash value in the policy is quite anemic. Uh, it, it is there. Uh, they do grow and they do build cash value, but they're not great investments. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, the next thing, 529 accounts. Can a 529 account be a good idea? Sure, if it's important to you to have money set aside for college funding, then the best time to do that is when your child is one day old. And the best way to do it is to make massive transfers uh, into your uh, child's 529 account up front. And so if you're wealthy enough to do it, you can put up to five years of your annual exclusion gifting amount into a 529 account on day one. And then you can do that for a husband, you can do that for a wife, you know, your parents can do it, your grandparents can do it, et cetera. And so you can put an excess of six figures easily into a 529 account. And the benefit of this is this immediately puts money aside that can grow for your children's college. Uh, if they don't doesn't get used for college, you can get the money out uh, either by with a couple of the escape options that we've talked about in the past. More importantly, this is one of the very few assets that moves money out of your estate but allows you to control the the assets still. So generally, just like we're talking about estate planning, under U.S. estate law, if you move an asset out of your estate, it has to go into an irrevocable trust that you get no interest in, you get no control of, etc. But a 529 account allows you to move the money into the into the 529 account and you can still control it. You can change the beneficiary, you can you can you control the money, but it's out of your estate. It's also frequently an asset that's protected from the claims of creditors uh, in many states. It's also an asset that can be frequently protected in bankruptcy. And so it's a very useful way that you could set aside a lot of money for your child's future, for his or her education, and yet do it in a, in a good way. And then when you put a lot of money into those accounts up front and you have a long time for them to grow with good investments, that's where, from a tax perspective, they really do work out uh, very well. I'll pause for a moment. Any questions, comments, anything so far? No, that, that's all great so far. Um, definitely a little better clarification than I had on the 529 and really how to, how to maximize value there by making a large upfront payment. Um, we've, we've done some of the uh, more niche, or niche stuff um, <laughs> just the kind of people we are. And I think we probably see eye to eye on several things. Uh, we already bought used cloth diapers in bulk from right. a friend who is selling them. So um, yeah. And, and anything else like that, that, uh, that you, you haven't mentioned on the podcast before. I, I think my, I think my wife would be willing to listen to an entire podcast of your wife talking about ways <laughs> to save money on babies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so used used cloth diapers are wonderful um, because uh, so first of all, the whole the, you know people who aren't familiar with cloth diapering, um, they're they like, oh, cloth diapering. Uh, what's funny is that with, we've used cloth diapers with all of our children, but we use disposable diapers when we travel because we don't have the facility to wash the diapers. And I'm not; it's not such a big deal to me. My wife can't stand disposable diapers because they always blow out. They don't hold the things that they're supposed to hold whereas cloth diapers properly done don't ever blow out and so um 
the, and and if you buy them early and if you get them in bulk when they're you if you get them used from a friend etc then they're they're fantastic because they're super expensive to buy especially if you go and buy them new they're really expensive to buy and so that's a good purchase that's a good area where buy, doing a bulk buy on the secondhand market is really really good the thing that you just want to be careful of is it takes a little time to figure out what you like so an example with our first uh, with our first baby, we thought I forget the brands now, but we we thought we really liked uh, this brand that uh, you put the it was a it was a fancy brand. I forget the I've forgotten all the brand names. Um, but then it's funny. A midwife said just uh, covers and inserts, covers and inserts, and this brand I think it may have been Fuzzy Buns or something where you have to you have to insert the 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 insert into the actual diaper. It's, it becomes super annoying over time because you always are doing this extra work. And so we've switched over the years. And my wife really likes the Buttons brand. That's her favorite, which is just a cover with inserts. Uh, but she likes the Buttons brand. Uh, so that's the, that's what she would say if she were giving her cloth diaper spiel. Uh, but it's really great, and she, uh, it's definitely the way to go. Uh, it's better. You don't. I hate throwing away diapers. I hate creating all that garbage. Putting all the plastic into a landfill drives me nuts for something that can be so easily solved. You'll also want to think ahead about your washing machine. Um, if you're going to do cloth diapers, you want to have, if possible, you don't want to have a high efficiency washing machine. You want to have an upright washing machine with a center agitator. So uh, that's your best one. You also want to be careful on the soap that you use uh, and make sure that you have an appropriate appropriate soap. Big thing you can do is you can stockpile clothing pretty easily. So what my wife did when we had children was whenever people said, hey, do you want baby clothes? She would say yes. And so most people have one or two children uh, and then they're looking to, they don't want to have any more children and they need to free up their space and they need to get rid of the baby clothes. And most people that have one or two children uh, who are upwardly mobile, et cetera, they have lots of nice clothes and the clothes barely ever get worn. And so we just practice saying yes. Anytime someone says, oh, do you want this certain thing yeah absolutely we'll take it and the clothes are the most valuable and what she would do is she would go through uh organize them sort them take the ones that she liked make the make her outfits etc and then just line them up according to size she would clean them get some of the spots off etc but i set her up these these shelves i got some of the just those standard shelving units uh at uh home improvement store and i set her up with these tupperware bins and for the first she had i think 12 tupperware bins of free clothes that she got where she or had them all organized according to size all organized in advance and basically for the first years of our three children life she bought like three outfits and it was three outfits because she just thought they were really cute and she'd never bought any of our children uh, outfits. And so I was like, buy them, come on, spend some money. And so the clothes are a great way. And it's a really a relief also for the parents who are just a little bit ahead of you. You know, they have a child that's a few years older because now once they have a, a repository for their used clothing, then that, that solves their problem. They feel good. They give it to you. You, you, you take it, you pass along what you don't like, you use it. And then when you're done, you pass it along to others, et cetera. And so that's the, the clothing is the big one. Um, beyond that with children, there's really not a lot of costs. Um, there are very, children don't cost much. If you have to buy, if you wipe out your diaper cost, um, 
depending on whether you're able to successfully breastfeed or not, buying formula can be a, a cost. But if you take that out, there are very few costs for babies. And so my biggest encouragement is invest into your child as much as possible. And so the big investments that I think pay off in, 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 in spades is, if at all possible, make sure that your child can have a full-time mother, most importantly, at least for the first three to five years of his or her life, um, and I say, organize your finances in such a way that that is doable and affordable for your family. Um, if you can make sure that your child has a full-time mother for at least those establishing years, that can make such a difference for the rest of your child's life. Uh, and the data on that is very, very clear. If you can avoid institutionalizing your children when they're very young, then that can pay off in spades. And then you can work on their intelligence. And um, mom can have all times. There's several good books uh, on how to improve your baby's intelligence. Um, some of that is innate, of course, genetic. But there are a lot of things that you can do of stimulating your baby in different ways. It's things it's as simple as reading to your children, making sure your children get sunshine and all, all the stuff. Uh, but I think that your best investments are not financial in that case, just a matter of how can I invest into my children to make sure that my children have maximum opportunities. You can deal with some of the stuff that I've talked about with multiple languages. You can bring in tutors or nannies to help support you in that. Um, you can look at early child education. Uh, I think that that's it's interesting to look at, but some of it can be overwhelming. A lot of it can just be simplified down to take time and spend time with, with, uh, with your baby. Uh, but yet those those things can pay off in spades and largely obviate the need for all of the financial stuff. That's my, to me, it's obvious that if you, if you're thoughtful about what you do in the first few years of life and you make sure that your children have a good, solid emotion, uh, emotional grounding where they're not, uh, they're not uh, traumatized in some way, then and you work hard at those early years of education, early years of vocabulary, early years of school, homeschooling is great for many families, um, then you basically eliminate all of the things that are going to cost you money down the way. People will throw money at your children for college. Um, people will throw opportunities at them, and all the stuff kind of takes care of itself. And so the least efficient way to handle those things is through all of the financial stuff. That's an industry that has been developed that allows we financial advisors to sell stuff. Um, but it's much more efficient for you if you handle it in the the old way. And then the whole system, again, will throw money at your children for the rest of their life if you get those early years as best as you can. So there's my little spiel. Yeah, really, really compelling stuff. I think, uh, summarized, I think you said in the last Q&A call, it's, it's uh, quantity of time at work and quality of time. I'm sorry, the reverse. Quality of time at work and quantity of time at home. So that's, that'll be my guiding star uh, when that time comes. Yeah, exactly. So think about it in terms of you know not having payments, right? Not having big bills. If you can pay off a house, great. Or if you can't pay off a house, don't, buy a, don't have a car payment. Think about it in terms of, well, maybe you and your wife both have to work, right? You both need jobs, but well, can we, is grandma available? Could we go ahead and move into a bigger house where grandma could be in the house? And so, and so or something like that. Just think about it in terms of the infrastructure of your life because, 
it, it, it pays off. Uh, I'm convinced it, it pays off big time. So keep me in the loop and then, uh, hey, call back in the future and uh, we'll see what happens. All right, I had several callers drop off, but here we go. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today? Last caller just says, just me? Yeah, go ahead. Tell me your name, oh, please. Okay. Okay. Frank. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, thank you. Um, so I have a main question and then a quicker second question if we have time. But um, I'll start with the first question. So um, I'm 25 years old. I have a career as an IT specialist with a government defense contractor. And I'm considering joining the reserves or the Air National Guard on a part-time basis. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on, like, whether you think the benefits of part-time military service outweigh the downsides. Um, thinking about it, like, in my mind, the pros would be the potential to gain more uh, experience and different kinds of opportunities in my field, uh, the education and healthcare benefits, eligibility for VA home loans, uh, eligibility to use commissaries and uh, future retirement benefits. Um, but some of my concerns are uh, the increasingly authoritarian kinds of rules being imposed on military members and federal employees like the vaccine mandates, um, as well as just more limits on my freedom and free time, um, especially if I were to have a family in the next five years. Um, adding another layer of bureaucracy to my life, like another person telling me, where I have to be and when I have to work or train, um, as well as it being more difficult to transfer or move to a different state or uh, part of the country uh, if another opportunity came up, like with my civilian contractor job. Right. I will answer your question and I will be as clear as I can. This will be an extremely offensive answer to some of my listeners, and I don't enjoy offending people. Uh, I especially don't enjoy offending people who have dedicated their lives to public service, service to country, etc., because generally those are the kinds of people that I like. Uh, but I, I, try, I believe in being honest, and so I'll give you my honest opinion um, as if you were my younger brother. I come from a family of people who served in the military. My grandfather was in the army in World War II. He was on the beaches of Normandy two days after D-Day. It was D-Day plus two, something like that. My father was a commander, lieutenant commander in the Navy uh, and uh, served in a submarine for many years. And uh, so I come from a family of, of, of people who were in the military. Uh, my father was in the reserves for many years, even after he left active service. I cannot understand today why any intelligent, capable man or woman would ever join the U.S. military. And I cannot see an argument in which it makes any kind of sense the things that the kind of the things that we honor, right? That the, the arguments that we most honor uh, are usually well protecting freedom or standing up a sense of patriotism, a love of country, etc. Those are things that we rightly honor. I believe that we should honor patriotism. We should honor people who want to defend their neighbors, etc. But 
for for people who have the most noble of of ambitions to serve and to protect etc i do not see how those noble ambitions can be achieved by serving in the u.s military in any capacity especially even including the reserves Um, the entire framework of the modern military system is utterly corrupt you cannot be honest and succeed in that system the only way that you succeed in the military system is by becoming by by being dishonest uh, i think the writer who i would encourage you to read what he has written uh, who is the best at articulating that from experience i have no experience i've never served in the military um, and i was strongly discouraged by my father from ever even considering serving the military i grew up reading uh, books that reading tom clancy books and other thrillers that imbued me with this sense of patriotism and i wanted to go in the military and my brothers wanted to go in the military and my father uh, refused uh, to the extent possible. Of course, we were legally adults. We could have uh, disobeyed him and gone, but he strongly discouraged and sought very, very vigorously to dissuade us from going into the military. And I am today exceedingly grateful that he did because I would have joined some form of the military uh, some branch of the military out of a desire to have a sense of adventure, out of a desire to have that sense of camaraderie, um, kind of that, you know, being with the boys, doing something that matters and protecting freedom, et cetera. And I, I, I could have literally lost my life um, for no good reason at all. And I could have had my entire life disrupted. And so I'm grateful that I listened to him and, and his discouragement of going in the military and didn't join myself. Um, so back to my point, I don't see, so if you go and read, first of all, read what John T. Reed writes on the subject. Um, John is known mostly in financial circles for being a real estate pundit, but he went to West Point uh, and he spent a good number of years in the military academy. And one of the things that I appreciate about him, sorry, in the, in the military, and one of the things I appreciate about him is he writes honestly on military issues. And he's written, for example, I often, I find his argument, his, uh, his, uh, article that he wrote years ago on military draft to be exceedingly persuasive as to why he believes that all military members uh, should be drafted. Uh, That having an all drafty army is actually one of the best ways that you could get a potentially moral and upright army of anything else. Um, So I don't, I don't support a draft, but I find his, his arguments very, very persuasive, but read some of his arguments about joining the military from the perspective of someone who has been inside uh, the military. Um, From my perspective, I would say that virtually everything that you want to get out of the military, you can get better in another circumstance. So want to get a college education. The fact that you have paid me money to go and be on this Q&A call today tells me that you're smarter than the person who needs the military for a college degree. Um, you, The training that you need, the specialization, uh, even a sense of adventure, all of those things can be accomplished better and more effectively than in the military. The problem is if you join the military, you will face a significant series of ethical conflicts um, combined with a set of very difficult personal conflicts in your own life. Let's begin with the ethical conflicts. Um, 
the U.S. government and the vast majority of military actions that the U.S. government engages in are immoral because they are not involved in defensive warfare. I personally, this is kind of a joke that in today's world, I oppose a standing army. The United States should not have a standing army. Um, there should not be an army that has military bases in 130 or 150 countries in the world. It is an insane policy. All of those bases should be sold and all of the troops should be returned back home. Um, and there should be no standing army. Um, or the, if there is a standing army, it should be a very, very small standing army. But that is not the path that we have taken as a nation. And so if you get involved with the U.S. military, you're not involved in serving and protecting. You're involved in being in, in, in pr promoting military power around the world for the protection and the advancement of military of excuse me, of American business interests. That's why the American military exists. Um, it was my dad who taught me that. He's like when I he was in Vietnam in a submarine spying through the through the periscope on uh, Russia and other places. And and his commander told him, "It's like Dave, listen, you need to understand the U.S. military exists for one reason, and that is to protect American economic interests. And so when you sign up for that, you are going into." a moral conflict, and you're putting yourself in a situation in which you will be court-martialed if you, if you follow your conscience. And most of the time, people that come out of the military, they have to work very hard to justify to themselves many of their actions. But go and look in your lifetime. At 25 years, you were born in, two, in 1997, I guess. So you go back, and, and in my lifetime, the U.S. military has been involved in undeclared war after undeclared war after undeclared war, and every single one of them has been a failure. The U.S. military has not lost, has not won a war since World War II. They've not won a war since World War II. There was one spectacular victory in Desert Storm, which then, of course, resulted in enduring freedom operation after were to depose Saddam Hussein and then the quagmire that was Iraq. And if you go and you look at the death toll of even just these recent re recent um, uh, conflicts, right? Uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the military actions in Pakistan have cost the lives of perhaps somewhere between two and four million people. For what? For what moral purpose? So you have to recognize that when you're joining an organization that exists to kill people, that you are going to be in a situation in which you are going to be asked to kill people. And that is something that should not be taken lightly. That's something that if you kill someone, whether you kill someone straightforward at the, you know, the, at the, at the muzzle of your, of your gun, or if you kill someone by you're sitting in a trailer and driving a drone and, and dropping a bomb on someone, or whether you just simply do it in a supporting role, cooking for the, the, your mates on the ship, you are involved in an organization that exists to kill people. And virtually all of that killing in the modern context is absolutely immoral. The only, only circumstance in which taking another man's life is morally justified is in the direct defense of human life. That is the only context in which it's morally justified. 
And so you can create these elaborate theories that somehow the United States of America is safer because we have uh, military bases in 100 and whatever 50 countries around the world, and we have all this stuff, and somehow that that's a defensive warfare, and we're going to go into Afghanistan, and we're going to get those nasty terrorists before they get us, and somehow that's moral. I don't buy it. I don't buy it a bit. And so I think that you you, you run the risk of putting yourself into a moral um, conundrum. And it's very difficult. Again, I, I gave my trigger warning up front that this is very difficult for most people because you, once you get into it, you if you enlist, you are going to quickly start to talk yourself into the, the moral uh, appropriateness of your actions because you'll see information and you will be conditioned into believing that what you do is morally right. The reason why the why military militaries all around the world enlist you at 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and frankly 25 years old is because you are gullible. You are gullible at 25 years old. You're gullible at 20 years old. We all are. I was. Um, I remember vividly my 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 driving in my car listening to right wing talk radio talk about we've got to go ahead and we've got to go in and, and get those people who attacked us on 9-11 and we've got to go in and it's operation I forget it was enduring freedom and I was so gullible that I was just enthusiastic about it. Well now in my mid thirties I'm less gullible than I was. And so if you talk to young men, young men think that war is exciting. Old men know that war is absolute hell. And the only time at which you voluntarily walk into hell is when the, when the people are literally at your door and they're going to um, kill your children and rape your wife and steal your goods. In that sense, yes, you walk into hell and you defend your, you defend your home. Uh, but you don't do it voluntarily for any for, beyond that. So it's it's almost impossible. I would say impossible. Although I haven't been in the military, and I've known a number of friends, people that I admired. I've had clients. I've had people I've served on boards. I've had good friends who've served in the military. Say, yeah, okay, I, I think they're good people, right? But I don't think you can. I don't think you can walk in integrity in the military. And I believe that you run the risk of signing yourself up for a great moral harm when you put yourself in a situation where you are making a voluntary choice to go and enlist in an organization that exists to kill people. And that organization has proven itself to be lawless and not to not and and the people that direct it, right? A commander in chief who basically uses the organization with with minimal to no congressional oversight, no formal declaration of war, and just pops people into Kosovo, pops bomb, you know, sends missiles into Kosovo and sends troops in here and troops in there. Um, I don't buy it. Now, if you got into it, you would see enough situations where you felt like you did good. That that's what those people. Like I said, I like military guys. I always have. But um, that's the first thing. The next thing, you are giving over control of your life. It's the exact opposite of freedom. You are giving over control of your life. And even if you do something seemingly as as benign as joining the reserves, and they say, "Listen, come out and spend a few weeks a month." Uh, few weeks a year training with us and we'll give you some cool gear. We'll let you drive some cool gadgets. We'll let you learn a little bit about, you know, your, your specialty, et cetera. Um, 
you very well could be signing yourself up for a death sentence. And I don't say that lightly. We've had too many people. I have a a friend of mine recently who she lost her, not recently, it was a few number of years ago, but she lost her husband in Iraq, right? How many people go and join the reserves and then all of a sudden they find themselves sitting in Iraq for two years? Why? What was the point of it? Um, and what's the point? How do you look, you know, if, if I'm at your funeral and I'm talking to your widow, what do I say was the point? What do I say was the point, right? What was the point of Iraq and Afghanistan? A few years ago, I spent some time with a guy who had flown, it was a Marine helicopter pilot in Afghanistan. And again, the key is, as, as was the case with me as a financial planner, a financial planner who is actively making his living as a financial planner has a very hard time being honest with himself, honest enough with himself to speak honestly about his industry, right? If a man's, it's a, you have a very hard time convincing a man of something when his, when his salary uh, depends upon his believing otherwise. And so I found it very difficult for years to separate myself, um, uh, separate myself from even the, the 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 job of being a financial planner to the point where I could look at it dispassionately and see the good things, see the bad things, and have some sense of personal honesty. And the same thing in my experience with people in the military. So anyway, I just remember a few years ago, I was I met this Marine helicopter pilot, and we were in um, uh, Utah uh, at uh, Zion National Park in Utah, and we spent time. And they were he was camping with his family, and we just talked about it, and, and he. He, of course, didn't share much about his actual experiences on the battlefield, but he, I just said, like, what well, was it worth? And he's like, I can't, I can't say that it was, there was any point in being there. And I, I think about a guy like that after the U.S. withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan last year, and it, it, you just, your heart breaks, right? Here you were at the front end of the spear um, inflicting bodily harm and death on other people, and what was it for? What do you tell your children that you were fighting for? Um it's difficult enough to defend things like World War II, right? Very difficult to defend ethically things like World War II. But you can always point to the Holocaust, right? You can always point and say, look, we liberated the camps or we, we, we fought Hitler. And so you think, okay, well, there was some, there was some justification. Uh, but it's harder, to def- it's harder to defend anything else. Uh, so let me continue my list. Sorry, I, I got a little... Detract. So number one, you're you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with not an employer, right? You're dealing with. I'm going to use this term. It's not quite the right term, but it evokes the right emotion. You're dealing with a slave master, meaning someone who controls your body and your time and every aspect of it. You're voluntarily committing yourself to obey, with virtually no questioning the orders of unknown men and women. Um, who, want, who, who, who literally will use you as cannon fodder. And they, they do that for your, they, they, and they, they do that with your life. So what can it cost you? Number one, it can cost you your life. Number two, let's say that you survive your time in the military and you have a kind of a, uh, you're, you're set off in the reserves, you're sent off to, um, to war somewhere. Um, but you survive. Well, you come back, and how many veterans commit suicide every day? It's stunning. It destroys men's souls. It destroys their brains. It puts them through incredible trauma. 
And because it's not, most of it is not morally defensible, the trauma just sticks with them. And it literally drives men to put a gun in their, in their mouth every single day and pull the trigger. It's evil. It's an evil system. And that's what you're potentially signing yourself up for. So you say, well, Joshua, that's unlikely, right? We're kind of tired of war. We learned our lessons in, lessons in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what is it good for? Well, I'll go and I'll get some advanced training. I don't buy that you can't get that better. And here I would refer you, the best, my best anecdote, um, I remember years ago, I heard Joel Salatin talk about this. Joel Salatin was uh, invited by a local set of legislators. Um, and uh, I forget all the details. It was where he lives in Virginia. And he was supposed to serve on some kind of board or, or whatever. He tells a story. You can go and find it. Uh, but he goes into this board. And he was talking about something about farmers. And he's like, we need to do blah, blah, blah with farmers, blah, 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 blah. And a legislator said out loud what we all know is true. But, he's, but he says, um, we, we, we need farmers because we need people to serve in the military. And the basic idea was that instead of allowing farmers to actually build wealth, he was, I wish I could do the anecdote more justice, but instead of, it was a shocking statement to come out of his local legislator's mouth. But basically, you need to understand that government representatives view that they need stupid poor people to sign up and serve in the military. Because they need bodies and they need people who believe in the sense of patriotism. They need people who believe in the sense of duty to country. And the, and the people who do this are poor people, they're country people, and they're farmers. And so they wave things like um, they're, they're people from uh, from poor backgrounds, inner city, uh, and they wave things like, oh, get a college education. They wave all this stuff at them, get a VA loan, etc., because they're getting poor people. You will never find... In the modern world, you will never find a wealthy family, uh, a sophisticated, connected family that would send their child into the military. It's all people who have no options, no opportunities, no intelligence, meaning that what I mean is they don't see the other options. They don't have enough mentors around them to show them the better path. And so then they go and they sign up for the military. And so many of them wind up destroyed by the experience. And so even if you come out the other side and you just went to reserve training and you never got deployed and yeah, I got a VA loan now, what is that really worth as compared to the risk? Um, a VA loan is not going to change your life. Uh, access to TRICARE is not going to change your life. Access to the the college funding is not going to the GA, GI bill is not going to change your life. So if you got those things, they can be useful tools in the hands of a financial planner. Right? I've known multiple people, many veterans. They get their vet, their medical care from the VA. Fine. Um, they get a VA loan. Great. Go for it. They got Tricare. They got a disability benefit. Go for it. But the problem is that the risks are so high of it going another way. That you've, I think that getting a VA loan, getting a GI bill, et cetera, is very, very poor compensation for the risk on the other side. And if you're smart enough to ask the question of should I do this, and if you're smart enough to already be working in that industry, I believe that joining the military would be one of the most, at the very least, one of the most inefficient ways for you to accomplish your goals. And in the worst case scenario, potentially cost you your life potentially cost you your soul, potentially cost you your sense of peace, etc. And so I don't think that, I think that just an, a, 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 in conclusion, a cold look at the pay, 
the benefits, etc., as compared to what you can get without that, a cold look at that would say that there is a um, there is a uh, that there's very little benefit for a person who has income for someone who's not penniless, right? I, I always want to be careful because there's no question that many people have had their lives improved by the military. There are many stories of people who grew up in poverty. I didn't have a dad and I went into the military and I found my buddies and I found my father, right? My father figure and sergeant so-and-so who straightened me out and I went on the straight and narrow and I went in and I did my four years and I got out and I was a totally different man. Um, but it, that, that, that world, so from, there are those stories, but that that same guy who, who did have that good experience is offset by the guys every single day who are putting a gun in their mouth because they, they can't deal with what they did. They can't deal with what they saw. They can't deal with what happened to them. And so it's, it, so from a practical perspective, I can't see why the military is a, is a good move. And then from a, uh, a sense of honor and duty Right, this desire to love neighbors, protect and serve freedom, um, make sure that we live in a free world. Uh, I, 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 most of those things just cannot be borne out by the military. Tell me, it's like every I'm, I'm always re- I wrestle with this every Veterans Day and Fourth of July. It's like, well, what do I tell my children about things like protecting freedom? What freedom has the U.S. military ever protected for Americans? Uh, there's no question, okay, we liberated camps of, of, of Jews that were going to be murdered. Fine. But what freedom has the U.S. military ever protected for Americans? My entire lifetime and my entire reading of history has shown that we've gone from the highest levels of freedom in the world in, say, 1750 to significantly lower levels of freedom in, say, 1780. And since then, the the decline of freedom has been inexorable. And I can't find a military conflict that has actually resulted in increased levels of freedom. Rather, I find that almost every military conflict has resulted in decreased levels of freedom. And so most of the whole like freedom thing is pablum, as best I can tell. So if you want to defend freedom, I think your best solution is go become a lawyer and fight in the courts. If you want to defend your freedom and your neighbors, go and encourage um, people and teach firearms training in your local community, encourage people to own weapons. Uh, that's the best way to encourage freedom in the local area, etc. So I went on a little bit long, but it's obviously a difficult thing and an emotionally laden thing. But if you were my younger brother, that's the speech I would give you to say, I can't see how or why any anybody would want to join the military, and especially in the modern world. Consider after Afghanistan, consider the fact that, consider who your commanders in chief are, um, meaning who your commander in chief is and or who your commander in chief would be. Do you respect that man or that woman to the point where you would sign up to take the 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 the, the pledge to obey them um and do you want to be used as a political tool um for for influence in the modern world i i can't see it so forgive me if that was a little bit strong but that is my honest answer to your question and i give you the floor no no i i really appreciate your your insight and per- i mean i agree with you on like all those points so Appreciate it. Yeah. I think that... Um, what, what I I would, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I talked for a long time. Go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was just going to bring up a, a second question that's unrelated. But Well, then let me just say one more comment. Here, here's what I would say. 
Okay. Yeah. You take every single one of the benefits, the reasons why you wanted to join the military or want to join the military or thinking about joining the military. And then just call me back once a week and we'll take one of them at a time, right? How do I enhance my career? And I'll give you a 20 minute speech on things you can do with your career. And going to reserve training is never going to be on that list. So uh, again, it all comes down to opportunity cost. Um, for the, I, that's why I try to be thoughtful. I, I want to, I want to be honest, but I don't want to be hyperbolic. There's no question that there have been many people whose lives have been improved by the military. These were generally people with no network, no parents, no opportunities, nobody who reached out and, 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 and helped them. And so for them, the opportunity cost was, well, I'm going to be stuck in the, in, a, in poverty or I'm going to be, I'm going to have no, no friends or no opportunities. Okay, great. The military was a better move for them if they survive it. But for you, that's certainly not the case. And so you can, you can replace with the, um, with the, uh, the military with better strategies in that don't have so many downs downsides and potential downsides. And before you say your second question, I just want to say this. I understand that this is a, an extremely inflammatory opinion. I hope that those of you who are in my audience who are in the military and who are, uh, who are doing it with the noblest of intentions. I hope that you understand that, uh, I respect your desires and I respect your intentions. My assessment is what I have said. I don't see how it can be otherwise. And I've asked enough people and talked to enough people that I think that many of my listeners who would agree with me ideologically and psychologically or who would share some of the things that, that I care about would would often agree with me. But I don't intend to, I'm not saying that you as an individual um, have done wrong. There's many people who think they can change it. There's many people who serve for many reasons. I think it's a lost cause at this point in time. And I think that uh, it's, it's, it's a lost cause and that one of the best things you can do if you're in the military is get out as quickly and as reasonably as you can uh, for the reasons stated. So go ahead with your second question. We'll wrap up on hopefully a less, uh, uh, less uh, uh, potentially uh, inflammatory <laughs> uh, question. Yeah, sure. So, um, what is your opinion on using, uh, like investing in treasury inflation protected securities or inflation adjusted treasury bonds or whatever they're called, uh, like for short term savings, such as to say for a down payment on a house? Um, I was looking at one of the Vanguard mutual funds, I think it's VIPs, and it paid about like 10% in interest, which depending on you know your inflation calculations might have kind of tracked along inflation for the for the past year and is definitely way better than any bank account um while at the same time being far less risky than equities or any kind of like defi um arrangement um but i don't really hear anybody re recommending this avenue for short-term savings um, I'm kind of missing or wondering if I'm missing anything there. I would never think of this avenue for short-term savings, but I don't have a clear argument as to why I wouldn't. So do me a favor, send me a link, uh, whatever brochure, whatever you're looking at, uh, send it to me at joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. 
let me look at it because this is not something that I have on my mental menu of options, but now I'm wondering why I don't. I, I don't I don't think that tips are the greatest uh, option of all time for retirees and, and protecting your money against uh, inflation. And I have some arguments there, but I need to think and consider from a short-term perspective and see, are there is there some cost that I'm missing? Is there something? Why isn't that on my menu? So send it to me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. I will review, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Fair enough? Okay. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. And with that, looks like my other two uh, callers dropped off, uh, which is probably good given the uh, uh, given the we're already at two hours here. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to today's show. Thank you for being here. I enjoyed the questions. Uh, quite stimulating and quite diverse. And uh, I love doing these shows. Uh, it's hard for me to give... Uh, answers that I know are offensive to people from whatever perspective, but uh, I do try to, I made myself a promise years ago, I will be honest. So thank you for listening. If you'd like to join me on next week's Q&A show, go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance, patreon.com slash radical personal finance, sign up to support the show there on Patreon. And I would love to welcome you next week. Remember that if you'd like to talk to me in private, I am currently accepting consulting clients. Uh, booked up through January, but available at the end of January, go to radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult if you would like to schedule an hour of consulting time with me, and I'll be back with you very soon. 